This podcast is dedicated to the memory of David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, Darlene Farron, Cecilia Shepard, and Paul Stein, and to Michael Mejo and Brian Hartnell. This is Zodiac Speaking, a classic gunpoint camping podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. You know that this man is still at large, mm-hmm. and that there is a better than uh, average possibility that this could be the same man who was involved in four murders over in Vallejo. Uh, can you think of anything that you might want to tell that man at all? I considered him a robber. I had absolutely no thought uh, that he was anything but that. And when we were at this robbery stage, I didn't consider any real threat to my life or to, or to the girl yeah. or anything. I really didn't consider this, but I, I really wanted to help him. And uh, he did didn't. He, did he seem as though he would like your help at all? No, he didn't. And he didn't even end up taking the money. But he... he I, I, Bear no grudge? Well, of course not. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that, that he was acting under his total complete, uh, t- total complete consciousness. And... Uh, uh, when a man is, if, if you don't mind using the word sick, uh, you, can't, you can't hold this against them. But the, the real concern that I have is that he doesn't do this again. I would li- I, uh, I'd like to see some people save this, this experience. We know more about Zodiac because of Brian Hartnell than anyone else. And it's only because Michael Maggio didn't get a good look. He should have. But the big problem wasn't that Hartnell didn't see him. It was that he had gone to a way to disguise himself. Here's the funny thing. The way Hartnell describes his interactions with Zodiac often gets him in a lot of trouble. Because they see his interactions, just particularly the initial one, such as this very early one from... KPIX in San Francisco were very, some would say, cold. I don't agree. I think it was mostly that he was just drugged out of his mind for the pain meds. But he is very well-spoken, amazingly well-spoken. He's spoken a lot over the years about his interaction with Zodiac. And I want to read a few passages that sort of help. This is from... The interview by John Robertson, who was a detective with the Napa County Sheriff's, conducted on September 28, 1969, and was transcribed from a tape recording. I haven't heard the original tape recording, and I kind of need to at some point, if I'm going to keep doing this podcast. But here's the response to the question. Start right from the beginning. What happened? Brian Hartnell. Okay. This girl came out from school. I used to go with her two years ago, and now she's going with another, going to another school, and she came up to visit some friends, and we were having dinner at the school cafeteria, and I said, well, are you doing anything special this afternoon? And she said, why? And I said, I don't know, we could go out and either go for a walk, go to San Francisco, or, you know, just because we used to be good friends. We used to have a good friendship. And so it got too late by the time we got around to what we were going to do. We had to stop in St. Helena for a couple of items. And then we had to cart around a couple of kids home and stuff. And by the time we finally got around to it, 
It was getting late, and we thought going to San Francisco would rush you, you know? Because by the time we got back for worship, and so we went to Berryessa, and there was this one place I used to go out. We used to all the time, you know, and I couldn't find it. And so I figured, ah, forget it. And this looks like as good a place as any. So I parked the car. There were no other cars there. I had a Carmen Ghia, 68, white, with a black vinyl top. And it's in pretty good-looking shape. But we parked there on the road's edge, and we talked. Oh, it must have been about a quarter of a mile to down to this place where we went. We had a peninsula. It's an island, I guess, during the wetter season. You can see where it, where it was levee. And so that looked like a lot. There was a big spreading tree up there. There were two of them, really. One was a little bigger than the other. We took the one that was out on the point. This is incredibly close to the time of the murders. He still would have been absolutely the key, I guess, to the whole interview is the fact that there is no way he wasn't drugged at the time. He had to be on an amazing amount of painkillers, probably antibiotics to prevent any sort of infection. So there are points where, on the transcript, it's marked unintelligible. There are points where he sort of seems to go back and forth over things and skipping around. And he talks very little about Cecilia Shepard, much to a lot of people's consternation. It continues. It was really beautiful out there. We were sitting on top. I lay down on my back and she lay down on her stomach beside me, you know, kind of resting her head on my shoulder. And we were talking, you know, kind of reminiscing about old times and stuff. And I heard these rustling leaves, and I said, You have your specs on. Why don't you see what the deal is over there? And she says, Oh, it's some man. And I said, Is he alone? And she said, Yeah. And she says, Well, he just stepped behind the tree. And I said, What's the idea of that? To take a leak? You know, because that's the only thing I could think of. Just step behind a tree. And so I says, Well, keep looking and tell me what happens. And she squeezed my arm and says, Oh my God, he's got a gun. And so he came out, and of course, still, actually, I wasn't... There's some things you really wouldn't mind having happen just for the experience of it, you know? I thought, well, I only got 50 cents on me. It's worth all of that having it happen. I didn't think about another angle. So I talked to him, you know? I said, well, listen, Mac. You know I'm in the sociologist field. You know, I'm pre-law with history and psych. You know, I've read about the criminal mind and everything, you know? I thought, well, maybe the guy really does need help, you know. I says, there's no strings attached, I says. I don't have any money right now, but if you need help that badly, I can help you I can help you out in another way, maybe. And he says, nah, time's running short, he says, because I just got out of some prison in Montana. I don't know what the name of it is. Feathers? Do you know what the name of it is? I'll see if it sounds familiar. Fern or Feather? It's some double name, like, Fernlock or something? It's Lodge. Oh yeah, yeah, Lodge. At least we know we're together on that. Mountain Lodge Prison or something of that nature. Yeah. You know, he said he broke out and had to kill a guard getting out. And I said, well, man, I mean, actually, I don't mean to call your bluff or anything, but wouldn't you rather be stuck on a stealing charge than threat or ho of homicide, you know? And he says, well, just don't start playing hero on me. You know, don't try to grab the gun because I didn't really figure the gun was loaded. I always thought it would be empty. I've heard a lot of times that 
this is what they do just as a bluff. But I decided not to call his bluff after we really, you know. I told him, you know, you're really wasting your time with me. I've got a billfold and this much change and that's it. And he said, he told the girl, go tie him up. I'd feel much better if you were tied up. And she tied a couple of loose knots on me. So I made it look kind of tight, you know, just for a second. And he said, go ahead. And I whispered to her, you know, I think I can get it. I can get that gun. And I said, do you mind? And she got kind of fearful about it. So I figured since there's two lives involved, not just mine, I won't do it. Right here is the key to this interaction. This is the first time we know of that Zodiac has directly spoken with any of his victims. And I'm of multiple minds about this idea. One, Hartnell, in this point, is as close to the time as any killer in history has been to really describing the importance of a moment and his interaction, his philosophy of that interaction. That's sort of the key. Brian Hartnell was not merely reacting to the situation. He was trying to guide the situation. I 100% believe anyone who says that Brian Hartnell is Zodiac and that this is all a bunch of crap is an absolute liar. Not only because he stabbed himself, we've seen many times the, uh, what is it, the dangerous vision, the guy who stabbed himself, the military guy, that happened. But he's describing an interaction with someone. Someone who Cecilia Shepard, before she passed away, also described to a degree. A little more here. So I let her tie me up on the wrists again, and he tied her up. Terribly tight, you know, real. Put his gun away, and we were talking and all. Bantering, you know, basically. I was thinking, anything I can do to help. By the way, just to keep the conversation going. Suddenly he was taking it all seriously, you know. So I was starting out, and finally he said, Okay, lay down. I've got her tied up, you know. He strung a rope between our ankles in the rear. So we were like this, you know, on our stomachs, tied. Robertson, you both facing the ground? Right. And oh, this was before I got, I got sort of ahead. So anyway, he said, get down. And I said, oh, come on, don't make me lay down. We could be here all night. We could freeze to death. I said that a couple of, three times. And he said, get down right now. He got a little pushed off at me. So I got down and then he finished tying her up and clonked her down. And then he goes, swoosh. And I said, do you have bullets in there? And so he pulled out the clip and showed me that he did. The bullets were about this long, I can remember, and about this fat. And they had this regular red cap on them, about this long. Maybe that doesn't give you any better description of the gun or not. I don't know. And it came out of the heel, the grip, you know. It slipped out from the bottom. And now to backtrack a little, I was really trying to see what he looked like, you know. He had on pleated pants, these old type of suit pants, you know. And they were either black or dark blue. I, I can't remember now. And I can't remember what he was wearing for shoes. But he had on this cotton coat. You've seen the kind that you just turn the collar up once. There's a zipper down the front, you know. They're real light, super thin, you know. Kind of a windbreaker, Robertson asked. Yeah, like a windbreaker. And it's got this blue, this little collar. Sometimes guys wear them standing up, you know. It's really important that he's capturing details here. But at the same time, he is forming an overall narrative of what happened that is getting sidetracked by these details. 
This is how the mind of someone affected by an event works. It is not merely the recounting of what happened. Because often people lose the, the thread. They'll understand the main line. They'll have this idea that I was there, someone came and affected something upon me, and there was an outcome. But what they really remember are the little swatches of things that happened on either side of the timeline. And it may not make linear sense as we think of it, but it does make sense in the overall story because each little memory is actually something that was triggered for a specific reason. Why was the color of the windbreaker important or that it was a thin windbreaker? Well, that means he was very specifically there on a day when it wasn't warm or when he didn't want to have to deal with it or when he was concealing something. It's in these little elements that we often get caught up in multiple ways. Often a small memory like, well, it was a blue windbreaker, but maybe it wasn't. And often people are discredited for remembering a little thing like it was a blue windbreaker instead of a green windbreaker or something that really, as far as the through line goes, has no meaning. It was merely a confusion. More from Hartnell. It was dark blue and I don't know. Maybe he had something in his pouch. I just took it as being a, as being a, you know, he was stout because he looked kind of heavy. I think he was weighing two and a quarter, 250, something in there. And I got kind of a look at his hair, his voice. I can remember almost like I'd heard it before. You know, there are some drawls that a lot of people have similar. And almost as if I'd heard it before, couldn't think where. I gave that one up. I just gave it up on that angle. I looked through his hair. I kind of looked like it was combed, you know, like this. It was brownish, you know, dark brown hair. There he kind of contradicts himself. He says it was brownish and it was dark brown hair. Brownish could mean a lot of things. But then he says dark brown, which is very specific. But really what I take away from that is he had brown hair. The degree of that brownness is far less important than the fact that he knew he had brown hair. More. And this mask he had on, it was ingeniously devised. It was... He had four corners at the top, like the top of a paper sack. Black. It came down. It came down with the front panel about to hear. And a kind of thing that came over the shoulders, you know? And then the same thing down the back, straight down. And in the front he had a circle with a symmetrical cross in the middle. You know what I mean by a symmetrical cross? Mm-hmm, Robertson said. The ends of the cross hung out about this far on each of the, you know, where it came out. The circle was this much, like this. And then it was like this, you see, hang out on the end, over the edge of the circle. And he had clip-on sunglasses. It was hard to tell, you know, the sunglasses you clip on when you're wearing glasses, eyeglasses. He had those clipped on, I'm pretty sure. I didn't think he had glasses, though. I think he had just clipped this onto his suit, you know, that little mask. And I don't know how tall he was, maybe 5'8", maybe 5'10", 6 feet, somewhere in there. I'm a very poor judge of height because of my height. I have no meaning, you know. It's always down, you know. It can never be up. There is no better example of someone's personal experience and lifetime interaction with the world coloring their perception of an event than him being unable to narrow it down to any better than 5'8 to 6 foot. That's a pretty big swing but it also doesn't make him at all unreliable. And that's one of the problems I have with a lot of folks who criticize Brian Hartnell's testimony as being 
poor memory or he was simply trying to be famous for having been attacked. I completely do not buy that. Particularly with the way he's acted since. More from the report. And so I saw him put away his gun and I was turning to say something to Celia and all of a sudden I feel my back just... No, I think I saw him pull it out. I don't remember. I think I saw him whip it out his knife and just start stabbing me in the back. Chomp, 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 chomp. It was just... You know, that kind of a sound and Celia turned to see why I was... You know, and she just about fainted. She went hysterical. And when he finally stopped, I mean, he went over and... The doctor says there's six in the back, six wounds on my back. You ought to confirm that. One I got went clear through the lung. I've got that. One I've got went clear through the lung. I've got it draining. I did drain a couple of pints of blood as soon as I got here. I lost an awful lot of blood, I guess. We were down. I mean, it was absolutely no question in my mind. When a person gets stabbed as many times as we did, we were going to die. I mean, there'd be no reason to question it. But somehow I, you know, started... I just knew there was too much I had to live for. I mean, really, it does happen. About getting depressed and everything. When you're young, you always think about these things. You know how you think about it. And when you've got someone forcing your hand, oh, well, there was a lot of things I had to do. What really kept me going, you know, my parents are pretty Christian. I haven't been too much of a Christian myself, but if you believe in the principle, you ask God to help you. Another thing, what was my only strength was knowing two things. One, that I did not want to die, and two, I felt that whatever was going to be, was going to be. But I was going to try my damnedest to stay alive, and so, like I said, before I left her, kissed her, and I said, well, I'm going to try to get help. Hardnell spends a lot of time in this interview looking outside of the actual stabbing, which makes sense, because it's a timeline, and most of the timeline is filled with details things he noticed, things he caught. For example, in his conversation with Zodiac, there were so many different stimuluses, all of equal weight. What did he look like? The symbol on his chest, the sunglasses, the location, how he hid behind a tree and came out. At the moment of the stabbing, there was one stimulus, the pain of the knife going in. There was his guttural sound. And there was her reaction. Those are the entire limit of the stimulus. That was all he could perceive, which makes complete and total sense. Had he been able to say, well, he stabbed me downwards from the left using his right hand, and that would have been great. But then I actually would have questioned it more. Because how do you, in a moment of such great single, singular stimulus, do you absorb all that? And he almost completely does not cover Cecilia's stabbing. At least not at that point. More from the report. There was a boat kept circling around out there in the lake, and we started yelling at it. And finally, it came within about 100 yards of the shore and turned off its motor and stayed there watching us for about 15 minutes. And we were just screaming hysterically, trying to get their attention, you know, to come over here. Oh, I don't know. I guess they were afraid that the guy might be there in the bushes. And they were liable to get choked or something. So finally, he came up a little closer. I didn't have my glasses on. I was just swaying, you know. And I had gotten one of her hands free before they came. And so I kept trying to get her to untie me. And she couldn't. She was too weak, she said. So finally, I just kept hollering and hollering. And she said, turn around. Let's see if I can do it again. And she finally got it. My hands and feet were just pure numbness. They're still numb, but I'm sure that will go away. But I finally got... 
on tires so she could kind of relax out because it was a terrible position, you know, on, on our stomachs. So I started to go for help and I finally got myself fairly reconciled. I wasn't too worried about dying. If that was going to happen, but I knew I had to keep pushing on. I had to force myself into staying alive because it was... I could just see myself, you know, all sorts of waves would come over. I just... Well, you've, you're not going to give up this easy, you know? And like I said, I just kept believing that God would do everything the best. And if the thing was going to happen, but I couldn't see any reason why I'm dying would be the best good. So I just played along with that. Here you can sort of see him start losing. I don't think he was being overcome with pain. I think it was being overcome with whatever pain medication they had given him right before they started the interview. Brian Hartnell's portion of This is Zodiac Speaking is really important. It's where he went for... He actually went to the site at Lake Berryessa, which has changed dramatically. I was actually kind of surprised by that. And he walked them through where things were and how it went down. And then he had the white background discussion with the camera. That is impressive. His story hasn't changed much. It's... Some of the details are different. But what universally hasn't really spoken about, at least in the interviews that I've seen, is his relationship with Celia Shepard. Hence why my personal goal to discover more about her, to be able to share that. I think the most important part of the entire interview isn't the part about, isn't the first part, it's about what he did after the stabbing. It tells us a lot. Why didn't the people on the boat come out? They were afraid he was still there? Did they see him with the gun earlier? Was he still there? I like the theory that uh, someone posted that, well, obviously they were the support. That they had literally been there to make sure there was no one else around. And ideally to watch him die. The idea of serial killer tourism is weird to me. If you want to read more of the interview from 1969, the 28th of September, it's on ZodiacKiller.com, the Hartnell interview. If you want to watch, this is Zodiac speaking, it's on YouTube, it's phenomenal. It's the best documentary that's been done about Zodiac, period. I put it on the level with the film Zodiac, which I consider to be one of the finest movies in the history of, of American cinema. It's incredible. The most important aspect for me of this entire thing is Hartnell's miniature details, but also how sudden the stabbings were. He establishes a great timeline. And of course he couldn't tell us about the other things, the writing on the car door, for example. But all of it comes together to form this image. And, you know, in Fincher's Zodiac, watch it. The scene of this is so realistic. And it uses this interview as primary documentation, obviously. The interaction is what's interesting. And that's, I know I'm harping on this in every episode about this killing. He went from the ultimate efficiency in murder. Zodiac walked up, fired one shot, then fired several shots. They probably never knew what was coming. Well, she did when she ran out of the car. Farron Maggio was so fast, 
that Maggio didn't get a chance to really look at him. And he could tell that he hadn't killed Michael Maggio, so he came back to do it. And I really believe the reason he came back, instead of waiting for him to bleed out, because think about it, there was no one else there. Instead of just waiting for him to bleed out, he went back and shot him again to cover his trail. So he realized he needed to circle back around and come up with a new way to be able to do his killing and maintain that anonymity. So he came up with the hood. He specifically changed his M.O. to fit the circumstances. He attacked at day. He used a knife instead of a gun. This is sort of why I don't think that the boat was serial killer tourism. <laughs> was because if he knew the people on the boat were there, he just used a gun. He used the knife to sort of conceal it, to make it quiet. I have maintained the entire time that the murders were not sexual in, ori in origin. That the Zodiac crimes were 100% terrorist actions. The first two were terrorism against couples, young couples, at night. Read into the whole couple thing as much as you want. Second one was couples during the day. He specifically chose this site, this time, to push forward a narrative. The, f the final killing was at no one's safe ever when you're alone. He moved from couples to a single. He concealed his identity because it allowed him to interact with his victims. And I really believe that the interaction with the police was another way of him interacting with what he saw as his victim. His victim was a combination of law and order and His victims were really a combination of law and order and general society. What's more of a basis of general society than interpersonal relationships of a loving nature? What's more of a representation of the general state of society than law and order? He saw his attacks as attacking this larger concept. And it worked. His interaction didn't start until after the second murder. And I think it is because he felt a thrill making the phone call, later writing the letters, that forced him to now interact with his victims because he wanted now to be inserted in their life for them to know what was going on. It's heavy, man but super strong. Hartnell's interviews are great, and if you haven't, go and listen to the Bay Area Mystery Club episode. And if there's... Ashley, if you're listening, and I so hope you are, please bring back Bay Area Mystery Club. I will do anything I can to help. It is an invaluable resource for Bay Area true crime folk like myself. I wouldn't be doing this podcast without her. Her podcast was just amazing. And the episode where she reads this interview, I actually, she doesn't read it, someone else reads it for her, but is 
It's phenomenal. It's engrossing. It's perfect. Way better than mine. Because it's just presented as the interview being read. So good. Bear Mystery Club. Subscribe. She stopped in the middle of a series on the Your Black Muslim Bakery, which, oh, wonderful. It's been gone for almost a year, and I am so sad. Brian Hartnell's testimony is the key to what we understand about Zodiac. What we, let me rephrase that. It's key to what we know about Zodiac. And it's only through analyzing the details that he presents that we can really try to understand the Zodiac. I'll be talking more about Hartnell in the next couple episodes, but the next episode is going to be something a little bit different. I'm going to look at the Shepard Hartnell murder through a very different lens than I've ever approached any of the others before. It's going to be through the lens of what did it mean to the Bay Area at the time and about the message on the car door. So stay tuned. <laughs>